0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan.
1: And I'm Gavin Cooper.
0: Welcome to Series 3, Episode 10. This is our final episode of Season 3. And today we've got David Brealey and Will Townsend. David's an ITU consultant here at UCLH and Will's a lymphoma consultant and he featured in our first episode about lymphoma in Series 1.
1: This episode's a really discussion between all of us about the kind of the close working relationship between the two specialties, hematology patients needing intensive care.
0: We talk about performance status of patients and what impact that has on a decision being made for a patient to be referred to an intensive care unit as a part of their treatment when they become unwell.
1: And I think the whole point of this episode really was to do two things. It was to show intensive care staff some of the things they might not know about hematology, like how curable some of the diseases are, how well some of the patients do following a a quick admission in ITU, even transplant patients, and also to do the reverse. What do hematology nurses, doctors need to know about the intensive care? What treatments patients receive and the importance of flow to get patients down in a timely manner?
0: We touch a little bit about treatment escalation plans, which they found really, really important, so they can identify the plan of care for a patient that may be suitable for an intensive care transfer or what should be managed on a ward. Welcome, David, and welcome back, Will. You did our podcast on lymphoma in Season 1, which was very, very popular. So, And this was actually, I think, a conversation we had about this was the original idea to do this podcast um, because I know lots of haematology nurses are really interested in knowing on what, what happens in ITU, and I would imagine vice versa. So maybe just to start with, can you talk to us about maybe historically what it was like and how it, that might have changed?
2: Yeah, certainly. Sure. Just thinking about it from the intensive care angle, clearly in UCH, managing the haematology patient is quite a large part of our lives. These patients take about 20% of our bed days. But this this relationship has developed over the years, over the decades, to where we are now. And I think uh, we're beginning to see the benefits of that as mortality rates start to fall and patient outcomes improve. And what's been, I think, central to that, there's probably several things that are central to that. Firstly, is an understanding on the ward, uh, from the ward staff, what sick patients look like. This is the ability to take regular observations and understand what those observations mean to be able to detect deterioration early and then to be able to escalate that to a team that is responsive and and mm-hmm. that certainly initially is the PERT team the patient emergency response and resuscitation team who spend quite a lot of time uh, working on the heme floors and of course over the years they've got used to working with the heme staff so I, I think that works really well and they can certainly to give a good critical care assessment to start with and either put in some uh, early management or or escalate that to the intensive care itself. I think also, I think it's been super important is um, that Will and his teams come around the intensive care every day and uh, make a point of uh, touching base with us as the, the intensive care consultants and the intensive care team just to make sure that everything is, you know, our understandings are aligned and and that we're all aiming for the right thing and allow us both to express concerns and so on and so forth. Because again, it can be quite easy to work in silos and slightly not be aware of what the other person is thinking. So again, that's super important as we get into these increasingly complex treatments.
3: I think a bit of background from me. So I mean, before I settled on working here at UCLH, and in fact, my first job here at UCLH was as a ITU, SHO, uh, a number of years <laughs> ago now. But before I'd come here, I'd worked at a number of other centres around the UK where I have sort of had my first exposure to haematology. And I was struck when I came here by how supportive our intensive care unit here is to our haematology programme. And that kind of spurred some interest in me, and I did a research project back then looking at ITU outcomes of our Allo patients, And in the kind of literature review of that, came across quite a lot of literature from not that long ago, maybe 90s and early 2000s, some of which had quite bold statements in it, like haematology patients should not be admitted to ITU based That's on right. some historical perspectives that the majority of patients didn't survive ITU and that it was a futile endeavour. I think even some quite important sounding bodies like American College of Intensivists had written a statement indicating that they didn't think it was a good perhaps resource use to, to use ITU for heme patients. And so certainly when I came and worked here, it was quite refreshing and, and, and interesting to see this collaborative work between heme and ITU, and, and that spurred me to do some of that, some of that work. And it's Well, it's, it's just great for us as a haematology department to have such a helpful team, and as David says, sort of having a team that is willing and, and able to come out and respond early to, to, a, to a deteriorating patient.
2: I think you're right, and, and certainly when I started out um, in critical care back in the late 90s, there really was a feeling that the neutropenic heme patient patients mm. should go nowhere near the intensive care. And I do seem to remember audits at the time showing really pretty poor outcomes that could support that. But um, looking at our data from the last year and, and your paper there, well, is that clearly things have changed. And now the mortality rates for some of our heme patients are not wildly different to the non heme patients. And mm. Clearly, There's a spectrum within that. But, uh, you know, it is not cast in stone anymore.
3: And it's interesting how attitudes and things change as well, because equally, I think, roll the clock back a few years, haematologists were often suspected of never giving up on patients and perhaps overtreating in the face of overwhelming evidence that it had become futile. And I, su- I hope that attitude has changed to a certain extent. But we do have a fairly unique population in the hospital in that we've got some of the sickest patients, But often these are fairly young patients, not all of them, of course, but a proportion of them. And we do have hope that some of these awful diseases are curable. And something that we took out of the big ITU allo recipient paper that we did was that if these patients survive ITU, their outcome following their curative treatment, and I'm using inverted commas there because clearly it's not always curative. But if we can support these patients through that critical illness, some of them have got a really phenomenal long-term life expectancy and you might even argue longer than some of your general um, ITU population if we can support them through this.
2: Absolutely, because they usually come in in pretty reasonable performance status, Mm. otherwise they would never have got to you in the first place. As their comorbidity list is low and that they are young and and generally say very active. So if they do get through this, their chances are are not unreasonable.
1: Maybe something like CAR T cells will change perception a little bit as well because you're talking about a very acute deterioration but then one that will hopefully only last for a very short duration and then hopefully a quick recovery as well. what you're hinting
3: at there Gavin is that the reversible <laughs> illness and, and I guess that's something yeah. we'll come on to when we think about like which patients should go to ITU and it's certainly something David will I'm sure talk about you, you really need to have something that's reversible to benefit from going to ITU. I guess just going back to something else there, like thinking why might outcomes be getting slightly better? I suspect it's twofold. Well, it's probably multifactorial, isn't it? But probably you've underplayed yourself there that what you're doing on ITU is getting better. Supportive care is getting better. The bits that we do around the edges of microbiology, of growth factor support, things like that, have all got better. But equally, some of our treatments for the haematological disorders have hopefully got better. Things like car T cell therapy are and other treatments are, are offering hope where, where maybe there wasn't.
0: I feel like on the wards I see more patients go to intensive care and for short spaces of time and then come back from intensive care, so do we get patients there earlier and does that make a difference?
2: I, I, I think that's the answer to that is yes, and I think that's perhaps one of the biggest uh, improvements is that the guys up on the ward are spotting the deterioration early, the outreach team is responding quickly. And if anything is looking unclear, then we bring them down to the intensive care. And if that's just for a day or so, that's fine. And if mm. we do nothing more than you do on the ward, that's also fine, that's a great thing. Mm. And if we can turn them around within 24, 48 hours and bounce them back up again, well, that's a win. And again, I think back in the old days in this, is not just true of hem- hematology, but every specialty uh, across every hospital is that we used to wait far too long until the patients were almost in a cardiac arrest before bringing mm-hmm. them down. And then clearly outcomes uh, we're, were going to be a lot worse. And what's driven that? Well, again, I think the outreach agendas really helped drive that change. I think we're lucky at University College Hospital because we have uh, a relatively large bed base. Uh, we've got 35 beds, which we can shift around quite quickly. And that allows us to, to flex up and down Quite smoothly, and again, we've had this relationship with hematology for for, for so many years now that again, we, we recognise we can we can do that, um, and I think there's there's this level of trust up on the ward and uh, and and down down on the unit that allows us to move patients quickly up and down without too much resistance.
0: Will, can you explain a little bit about what a patient's performance status is and how that would impact on what the ITU consultant would know to be a good candidate for a referral?
3: Yeah, Our performance score, it's a, it's a hot area. Trying, you know, What you're trying to do is distill what a patient's physiology, what their fitness is like, down to a number or a score that, that's simple. And there's lots of different ways of doing it. The crudest one we use in, in oncology and haematology You'll hear it called different things, either WHO, World Health Organization, or ECOG, which is the uh, one of the American Oncology Group's performance score, where you get a score of zero if you're completely fit and as normal, one, if you're a little bit disabled by illness or by fatigue, two, if you're a bit more so, three, if you're in bed quite a lot of the day, four, if you're in bed all of the time because of your illness, and five is dead. So we talk in in kind of oncology and heme terms, when we're thinking about starting someone on treatment, we're kind of trying to record their performance score. But it's kind of crude. It's a very rough number. And of course, there's always a debate about, ah, you know, is this person's performance score poor because of their comorbidities, frailty or age, or because the disease that they're presented with, their acute leukemia or their spinal fracture, is their myeloma or something, has caused a sudden drop. So we kind of we record these performance scores a lot, but then there's a lot of grey area around them.
1: It's not the be all and end all.
3: It's not, and neither is age. I don't think we have a... We, we try not to be ageist and have cut-offs, absolute cutoffs for age, where we decide that a heme treatment is appropriate. And I suspect the same is when Absolutely. you're thinking about whether someone's appropriate for ITU, David. Like, we don't have an age, but we're trying to think more physiologically about someone. And I think it's fair to say we don't have brilliant measures of those, and we... They're kind of crude, aren't they? Absolutely. You
2: know, the so it's a big deal to us. And, and yes, let's put bed straight away. Age doesn't really factor into this. And we admit emergency patients well into their 90s. That's not a problem. But intensive care is all about supporting acutely failing vital organs, organs that have failed all of a sudden for some reason and trying to deal with whatever reason that is. And of course, in, in hematology, it's often driven through infection and sepsis. But if we look at the wider intensive care field, it could be being hit by a bus, it could, be, um, it could be a stroke or a heart attack. Now, we can support those organs acutely if they've suddenly failed as a result of one of those disease processes. But of course, if they come into the intensive care with a whole load of what we call longer ongoing organ failures, maybe, they're on, uh, maybe they go to a renal dialysis clinic, maybe um, they've got chronic heart failure, maybe they're on home oxygen for their COPD, is these patients that don't tend to fare very well, they've got a poor performance status before they, they, they get unwell, they are relatively frail, and, and frailty in an intensive care, it's associated with a poor outcome. And I think, again, just coming back to heme-oncology patients, your patients generally, before they got unwell with their acute disease, are, are in reasonable state. I say, with those with a uh, long list of severe comorbidities, the chances of, I say, succeeding to get the patient better fall right off. And perhaps importantly, the quality of life. So, so intensive care is not just about survival, yes mm-hmm. or no. We certainly used to think about it in the, those terms, but we've got a little bit more nuance now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the quality of life following survival. You know, And if quality of life means that you're stuck in bed, fed through a tube, and unable to move, and get off oxygen. How many people really want to live like that? You know, that's an open-ended question. You know, people have individual answers. But we're probably not doing any favors to that person. But say, with uh, with some, if we can, uh, even if we put them through hell, if we can get them out the other end with a good quality of life, such that they do sell off into the future and live properly, then that's worth it. Yeah.
0: I suppose it's really difficult to have those conversations with a patient and the patient's family that when they're very acutely unwell and I know when we're consenting or when you're consenting Mm. people for Mm. chemotherapy obviously there are conversations about you may need to go to intensive care but that seems so far away from when you're actually in the situation so how do you put patients in the position to know exactly what might happen and for them to make that decision without scaring them too much? I
3: think at the point that I'm consenting someone for a treatment, a chemotherapy or a transplant that has a risk that they'll become acutely ill and may need intensive care support, as you say, it's quite hard for a patient to think about what that might be like when they're just embarking on their treatment. So I tend not to go into a huge amount of detail with them at that point, other than to say that the intensive care unit is is an area where they get much closer monitoring, nursing, and where we're able to do interventions that we can't do on the ward. A difficult conversation on the ward is with a patient who clearly has devastating illness, perhaps a constellation of things that we as as the heme team, doctors and nurses, think is irreversible. And the patient or not infrequently the relatives are pushing for us to do everything. And we then have a discussion about, well we, we don't think that your relative is going to survive we don't think that if they deteriorate we should go to intensive care. That's a very difficult conversation, or it can be difficult. Mm -hmm. Sometimes relatives and and, and patients are very grateful that we've had such an open and frank conversation. Sometimes we meet a lot of resistance and I find it very helpful, David, when we come down to ITU and we ask one of you or or your team to come up and explain to uh, often a family, often a very stressed family, about why it
2: may or may not be appropriate. That's one of the better sort of interactions that we have where we can help save patients from some fairly distressing stay on intensive care mm. um, and all the things that we do, particularly if, if the outcome is going to be almost invariably poor. What would be a, uh, maybe a typical patient's journey
1: with lymphoma? Because if you're an intensive care nurse or doctor, you might think, oh, they've got hematologic malignancy, it's lymphoma, this is a bad prognosis. But what, what's their journey look like?
3: Yeah, I think
1: a really good
3: question and and i think what's important probably for the itu team to know is like look i'm aware that these often the blood cancers the hematological malignancies get a bit lumped together they're they're a bit complex they've often got a, we are particularly bad in hematology for using complex abbreviations and <laughs> changing our abbreviations on a roughly yearly <laughs> basis it is all a bit it can can be a bit overwhelming and, and i think because it seems a bit complex for those who aren't doing hemonc on a regular basis maybe all of the blood cancers morph into one yeah. and then I think crucially as as you say that the ITU team are really only seeing the you know the real tip of the iceberg the real difficult cases and I, I hope that some of the uh, intensive care team will listen to your, your other podcasts that give us an indication of the kind of patient journey both in the outpatient setting but also the inpatient setting because certainly if we take my disease area lymphoma the vast majority of patients that I look after never set foot in the hospital, let alone the ITU. So if you think about those that are coming to ITU, that's a real yeah, well, tip of the iceberg. Um.
2: I think we were done. We did a little study looking at blood markers for infection and, and we looked at patients going through consolidation chemotherapy. We were taking some blood samples in, in chemo daycare and then tracking those patients through. Of the 90 or so patients we looked at, two came to intensive care. Yeah, there you go. Uh, And again, it was just you don't appreciate that down on the third floor. You think all hematology patients come downstairs. And we could we we could talk for a long time about
3: the differences between between the blood cancer and clearly a patient with an acute leukemia, well I say clearly, clearly to me because we're doing it day in, day out, a patient with acute leukemia will spend a lot longer as an inpatient in the hospital up on one of our heme wards and has a much higher chance of coming down to the intensive care unit than a patient with a blood cancer that's mainly managed as an outpatient, like a lot of the lymphomas, myeloma, and the chronic uh, disorders like CLL. And, oh, I'm using the abbreviation straight away. Uh, <laughs> the chronic leukemias, like chronic lymphocytic leukemia and chronic myeloid leukemia that will rarely come in to the ward. Another hospital I worked in a number of years ago now, and I'm sure things have changed there, there was a lot of resistance to the heme patients coming to ITU. And we, well, I say we, I was very junior, It was (laughs) One of the intensive uh, care consultants was invited to come to some of the heme clinics and saw these patients in the outpatient setting, either during treatment who were doing well or later on, once they're cured, um, with an excellent quality of life. And I think that was a really helpful process that really Mm. helped change that dynamic. Thankfully, I don't think we need to do that here because your team is so receptive. But it might, you know, I don't know if there's intensive care teams who wonder what does go on what on earth are we doing to these patients (laughs) that end up on their unit all the time? Maybe some sort of exchange program with, with hematology would be helpful to them. I would be remiss because I realise that I've talked exclusively about haematological malignancies and I know that my colleagues who spend a lot of time managing haematological disorders that are not cancers will be very upset. And also your intensive care team. you know. So I guess the other big areas of, of our haematology patients that do get sick is the TTP yes. clotting catastrophe patient. So TTP, we have probably one of the largest cohorts in, well, certainly in the country here really amazingly good outcomes but often getting very sick and often needing urgent (coughs) ITU input that's one group and the other big group I guess is the patients with red cell disorders many of whom have had very difficult healthcare problems sometimes for many years but do sometimes get catastrophic things like um, sickle cell chest crisis and need need urgent input from from the ITU team so I just want to Acknowledge that not all that we do in haematology and up on T16 <laughs> is malignant, matter. and clearly there are groups of patients that, that come, the, come your way.
2: I, and that's absolutely true. And, and you know the TTP lot are, are a great example of again of teamwork.
3: Teamworking, team identifying them early, getting them down to you. And...
2: They get the call from St. Elsewhere and they're almost instantly on the phone to us to say get a bed. We've we've recognised that this is, this is a, a crashing emergency and we can't delay uh, for an hour or so and we, we always treat them like we would in a ruptured aortic aneurysm, i.e. you know there are no excuses. We don't care about beds. They're coming in right now. And I'm sure that has contributed
3: to the amazingly good outcomes that these and I think it helps very sick patients.
2: But have. again, you know, as soon as they've arrived, the teams ascend uh, and the therapy starts and so on and so forth. So 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 being able to work together really really helps and that's grand. And equally true with, with red cell and uh, you know particularly the the, the sicklers. You know I guess we don't see quite so much uh, of the sicklers, but but you know we see a fair few. And what really matters is that we've got the consultant who's on the phone saying I've got this person and I am really worried mm-hmm. um, because X Y Z, and I think if we do A B C that will make the difference. And that direct. Instant communication just really cuts through all the barriers that could get in the way of these admissions. Who don't necessarily, don't necessarily on paper uh, over a phone call would sound. Do they really need intensive care? Do they really need to come down? Low news score. Yes, doesn't sound that exciting. But you know, having that that yeah, no, I understand the news score is low, but we know where this is going because and you go, oh, that makes super sense. Come on in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think again that really helps. Just coming back to the point of of the nurses, we're talking very much from a medical angle, aren't we? And that's awful. Because the reality is it's our nurses that look after these patients 23 hours, 55 minutes of the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly in intensive care, they're the ones that are sat by the bedside continuously with the families. And if they understand what's going on and they know what we're aiming for, that makes their job so much easier because it can be emotionally exhausting for these guys to be yeah. in those really in t- continual intense situations. And if they if they know what's happening and they know why they're doing it, which <laughs> is so <laughs> obvious but so important, perhaps sometimes we're we're missing. Yeah, not, and I not think I saying.
3: think I think on our level on our haematology ward rounds, just spending an extra minute to speak to the ITU nurse that, mm. as you say is going to be by that bedside for the rest of that day, just explaining. Even in just a couple of sentences, what disease are we treating? Yes. What treatment have they had and what does potentially the future hold for them? It just invests the person in in, it. Massively. Hopefully, hopefully, well, we've said it already, but hopefully some of these other podcasts that explain these diseases, in in, these kind of complex diseases, explained in, in fairly simple terms, will be a good resource to the ITU team. Definitely. I don't know, something that I wondered if we'd touch on, like I mentioned how complex we make the disease classification in haematology. The other thing we, we kind of make mysterious is our, our treatments with <laughs> yes. abbreviations. And there's just there's one thing that often comes up in ITU when I'm talking to maybe a, a relatively junior nurse or a junior SHO or registrar who mm. hasn't done haematology and bone marrow transplant gets said. And, 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 and again, this is just a whole host of different treatments, but often put under one umbrella. And there's even just one very simple distinction that I think is important for intensive care teams know, which is there's a massive difference between an autologous or auto stem cell transplant and an allogeneic or allo stem cell transplant, um, which you know we could talk about in depth. But I think it's kind of helpful for the ITU teams to know that an auto transplant is really a fancy way of giving high dose chemotherapy. And when we use that patient's own stem cells to help them to recover from said chemotherapy. So these are effectively patients who have just had high dose of chemotherapy they ought to recover their blood counts about two weeks after they received their cells back and they ought to recover fully from that transplant with very few long-term knock-on effects beyond what you expect from chemotherapy and as a general rule mortality from an auto transplant is thought to be low and we should do everything to support them through that period to recovery because we're hoping that they'll go on to do well and that's totally different to an aloe or allogeneic transplant where we've transplanted somebody else Mm. often often a sibling or an unrelated donor somebody else's entire immune system into their body i mean this is an amazing treatment and it gives a a very effective treatment against the disease but with much longer term sequelae from it and the real challenge after an aloe is not necessarily that short period like it is with an auto but it's the months come. to come later, mm-hmm. um, where you're trying to balance the difficult balance in the immune system between the new immune system, seeing the cancer and dealing with that, versus not seeing too much of the host tissue and causing problems in the balance between immune suppression and infection risk. And they're just very, very different procedures that often get kind of umbrellaed together. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, and It's just another example of why this fairly complex area of medicine, a few minutes spent educating the the team about what we're dealing with can be invaluable in helping that team work. Super helpful.
0: In terms of treatment escalation plans, it's something that we're quite keen for on the wards. It gives us a plan, um, more so out of hours and things, so we try to push for a treatment escalation plan. Is that really important for a patient in intensive care, and does that plan continue with the haematology team or change, or do you take over that plan when they come to you?
2: Now, that uh, it's, it's super important. You know, if you are worried about the haematological background here, that the chance of cure is just not going right, uh, and that you're concerned that full escalation and to full organ support is the wrong thing to do, then the earlier we have that chat, the better. And, of course, it's not always possible, but te- uh, treatment escalation plans... Give us a feel of what that might look like so even if it's two o'clock in the morning mm. and the consultant that's on call doesn't actually really know that patient a tech can give us a flavor of what we should be doing and that can be incredibly helpful and also in, in communicating to the family at this point this is not about withholding treatment this is about not giving treatment that will not work and that will only harm them, hurt them, and cause them distress. Now, we don't want to do that. Uh, and therefore, TEPs become really important in trying to guide us through that. And of course, we can, you know, the TEP is not a rigid thing in stone again. The, 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 we can assess the patient and see how they move and flex, and we can flex with them. So if all of a sudden the, the TEP says, well, this up should not be for vasoactive support in case their blood pressure goes low and we bring them down and they're looking great apart from a bit of a low blood pressure Mm. well perhaps we could ignore that a little bit um, and change and work with the patient but recognizing that if all the acute organs suddenly fail that putting on a ventilator and all the machines and all the stuff that comes with it it would not be in their best interest because it won't get them better again And, uh, and we can save them that level of discomfort and, and, and not, put, not, not put the family through it as well. And that's so important. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, we find them incredibly helpful to, to, to guide what we do, but we don't necessarily see them as the law. I
3: see. Do you hear the term trial of ITU much?
2: Yeah, that was Vogue a little while back. Um, and it's, it was a case of um, bringing down patients who we thought probably weren't going to do very well throw everything at them and see what happens. And if after 24 or 48 hours they were not better, then withdraw that treatment. But then it becomes difficult. So you do all that, and then what do you you define as not better? (laughs) Because now they're on a ventilator, but they need less oxygen. Now they're on some vasoactive support and their blood pressure is better, and the kidney machines manage to make their potassium and creatinine better. So they look better, but there are not awful full lot of support, and the chances of them making it are not great. But what do we do now at forty eight hours? Because everyone can see, well, the numbers are better, but they're not perfect. So we've sort of gone away from that. This concept of having a hard endpoint at forty eight hours or a hard stop with a tech or whatever it is. I think we, you know, as I say, each of these patients are so different, so individual. No instruction booklet. It's almost like feeling your way through it each time. You've got to see how they respond uh, and work with them. Again, really important that we all stay in contact as the team so that we go, so when your registrar comes down and says, oh, well, look, the creatinine's halved overnight. Mm. That's wonderful. Yes, it's wonderful, but it's the machine that's done that. That, that we can all understand what, why, why the numbers are changing. And again, that's really important such that we don't give mixed messages to the family. I think what can happen is someone comes along and says, oh, look, the kidneys are a whole load better in the family. Go, yay, that's wonderful. And we can say, well, maybe the machine. Or, of course, vice versa. You, you know, you know, so, so again, all of us singing from the same hymn sheet. So again, this, this the concept of trial of ICU, I sort of understand it, but it's very hard to define, and we don't really do that. No. We work with the patient.
1: From a ward nursing perspective, uh, I know that hematology nurses are very used to Specialing patients and looking after very sick patients, but I think probably there's a bit of a, a feeling that there can be delays in patients getting to ICU. Maybe that's the sort of, I guess, the anxiety of feeling like the nurse is slightly out of their depth, the patient is a bit yes. sicker than they or like, it demands more time yes. than they can give. And what would be, I guess, you know, from your perspective from the other side, is that do you think that's the case? Is that are you seeing patients quite late on, or is it just a case of it, you know the sort of the ne- necessary things that need to happen we need to move a patient from a side room we need to do this and it's happening in quite a, yes. a decent controlled is, environment because yeah. it is trickier uh, yeah. you know depending on yeah. what day of the the year it is. Or the, the, what time the, of the this day is a super is, yeah.
2: interesting question uh, and of course as intensivists we usually like things done by yesterday mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and, and things have to be done quickly otherwise we do get terribly frustrated as do your stuff upstairs it's difficult the flow through the hospital is phenomenal. We're doing more surgery than we've ever done before. We're getting more people to the ED than we've ever had done before. There is rarely a spare bed available. So when you do call, there's often a patient in a bed. Now, that patient doesn't need that bed, but there's no bed necessary on the ward to go to. to, go to. Yeah. So we, we've tried keeping emergency beds free, but it never works.
1: No you just fill them, is
2: that? Yeah. Well, happens, it's or? The, what stops us is the delay discharges. Yeah. So to
0: get back to, patients back to the ward. Yeah. So yeah. you
2: know it's not unusual to have 10, 15 patients. Well, no, fifteen is overdoing it. But hmm. five to ten patients awaiting discharge to the ward, oh, but really? there are no okay. beds on the surgical or medical wards. Now, if we could get rid of them with a magic wand, um, then of course your patient would be down instantly. So. You know, you don't see that necessarily up, up in the tower, that uh, uh, the poor old charging ass is, is desperately onto the bed manager, desperately trying to find a bed, desperately move them out, get the cleaners in, move the staff around, and boom, dang, you come. Now, having said that, you, you know, if, if there's ever a case where a patient has had a cardiac arrest or, or is about to have a cardiac arrest, then of course, one rushes that patient down as fast as you possibly can and, and deal with the consequence patients who you know and again i think this is a tribute to 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 your guys and and to the outreach teams you pick them up well before that so they're a little tachycardic uh maybe they're breathing a little bit faster and they're on a little bit too much oxygen they don't necessarily need to come down in five minutes sure but you're absolutely right they do need to come down and, and and i it's just the process of the hospital rather than i think everyone going oh yes D16 on the phone again uh, so I don't think that, well, that <laughs> yeah, absolutely sure, sure. Yeah. does not happen and you know well, again what's important is one can't predict the future so if, if um, perts have seen your patients and the intensive care have accepted it well that's great but if things are deteriorating quicker than, than you think they are or we're not responding quicker is that you get back on the phone again and say well hey things have changed here I wonder if you could A, either review or B, just tell me when that bed's available because I don't think we're going to be able to hang on much longer. And keeping that dialogue open, again, it's really important because we it's can... to
1: communication, does not it? It does. It? It's all about communication, mm, yeah. isn't it? It well, makes I guess such a
2: difference.
1: You, you have a very difficult sort of bed situation to manage, I guess, because not only are you dependent on every other ward in a way that most wards are not, you know, they're much more self-contained, but then you also have the elective... Patients you need to be bringing through and all the surgeries and all the knock-on of that, That's as well right. as the emergencies.
2: So, so we, we run pretty much at capacity most of the time.
1: Do you think there's like a trickle-down effect from ITU in terms of the kind of skills and technologies that are going to be available in the wards to make it sort of easier to look after patients? I know you're doing work on the sort of telemetry hey, yes. products that are yes, coming out and one day maybe... I guess, commercially viable, but do you think that's going to change ward nursing and change, therefore, what ITU does?
2: I think there's an awful lot of exciting stuff coming around at the moment. Some of that is in wearable continuous monitors, uh, vital signs uh, monitors that you can just put a sticky patch on or an armband, and it beams that information continuously to whoever needs to know about it. And I think that, that could be useful for picking up rapid deteriorations. I think to be very honest i think uh you see hematology wards are very well set up uh and you you pick up those deteriorations i i think i doubt it will have huge impact on your wards i I wonder whether it be useful in the sort of cotton room or home environment Mm -hmm. possibly enables people to stay at home a little bit longer maybe i think i think that could be worth exploring i think the other interesting stuff is if we start to Take classical vital signs like this and then merge it with the rest of the electronic health record Mm -hmm. and start to do some clever analysis around that. Well, I'm making it up, but mix it up with age <laughs> and creatinine and diagnosis and drug treatment and, and so on and so forth, where, whether we might be able to have a glimpse of what the future holds for, for, for that person or, you know, this is a particularly, he may look fine now, but he's a particularly high-risk patient, so we ought to keep a closer eye on him so on and so forth. So I think, that's, I think that's, that's, that's very exciting too. I think the other things we're really in, in, intrigued about are the rapid point-of-care diagnostics. You know, does the patient with a temperature and a high heart rate, does he have an infection? Mm. The answer is only yes or no, Um, but at the moment it's maybe. Uh, And that's not very helpful. Even Um, more
3: so with some of our new heme treatments like CAR-T cell therapy and some of the other immunotherapies Mm. that you mount a response that looks very much like infection, infection, but often isn't. That's gonna be useful, isn't it?
2: So I think that sort of stuff could be really helpful because again, um you know, we treat them all, quite rightly, we treat them, these guys as all potentially having infection. You know, the, the drugs that we use, uh, the antibiotics, are, uh, have some significant toxicity oh, associated sure. with it, you know, the commonest cause of liver and kidney damage or drug-induced liver and kidney damage on intensive care. And again, you know, we've, we've just deployed a, 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 a PCR, a rapid um, pathogen detection system on the intensive care as part of a trial, hmm. which... It looks really interesting of how that, that's working and how you and I, the, the medical team, react to some of those results. You know, sometimes it's very easy. You find a bug and you go, gosh, there it is. We'll treat that. But take a very sick hematology patient and don't find a bug. Well, stop the antibiotics then. Oh, no. Um, you know, no, one, no one would dare do that. So, 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 so again, as, as these diagnostics come quicker, easier, more accurate, and as we start to trust them, um, I hope, uh, and learn how to deal with them, and again, I think, I think we will fin- we will speed up and finesse our management of these patients, and that can only be to the benefit.
1: I think that's a perfect ending. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs>